We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Uh, tonight, we say, we're going to say, welcome home to someone who has been here before, but it's his first time as an author in the clubhouse. Uh, and that is Jerry Wood. Jerry's book is called Smokey Joe Wood, The Biography of a Baseball Legend, published by University of Nebraska Press. Jerry, welcome back to the clubhouse. Well, thanks for having me, Jay. It's great to be here again, and uh, it's a wonderful place to be. Thank you. It does feel like home. Good to be here. All right, great. Thanks. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to welcome you back because this is a really, it's a fantastic book. I, I thoroughly enjoyed Thank you. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed this. I knew a little bit about Smokey Joe Wood, very little, frankly, and I was fascinated by uh, your research was, was phenomenal. Thank you. And when we first met and you came in and you said, oh, I have this book about Smokey Joe Wood. My name's Jerry Wood. So I thought, I just assumed you were his grandson. And then I started telling people, oh, his grandson's coming. It's, it's going to be great. Then as I read the book, I realize you're not uh, even related. So my first question is, since you're not his grandson or a relative, what, why, this guy lived 100 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. What drew you to, to Smokey Joe and, and wanted to, why did you want to write this book? Yeah, I was watching Ken Burns' bio, uh, uh, baseball um, documentary. And they started talking a lot about Smokey Joe Wood in 1912. And, you know, the weirdest thing, I just said, well, I think I know a little bit about baseball history. This guy's got the same last name, and I never heard of him. And then I picked up, as I'm sure a lot of you have, uh, Larry Ritter's book and read the interview. And I said, this guy's pretty smart. And uh, then the connection to Yale uh, was a significant one. My son-in-law was in... Um, doing his residency in anesthesiology at Yale, so I thought I got a connection. I at least got a place to sleep. <laughs> and then I did some uh, some research to find out um, what family members were still alive, and I was lucky enough to get in contact with Bob Wood, who was his last surviving son, who died in, uh, May, in May of 2009. And Bob was extremely helpful. Some of you may know him, um, and he's also into sports memorabilia, so he had all kinds of stuff. And I visited Bob on a number of occasions, and each time Bob, as he trusted me, was more and more um, giving about what he had. So he had, for example, the death threat uh, letter, uh, one of the death threat letters uh, from, the, from the 1912 World Series, and um, then some really interesting interviews that were done. And by then I was hooked. So, uh, you know, just um, 10 years later, that was all done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is actually it's a it's a it's, he had such a fascinating life that I'm not sure where we should start. But since you just mentioned it, let's let's go right there sure. to this death threat letter uh, from the 1912 World Series. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Joe was the big pitcher. I think people know about him, and uh, you know it, it's funny to be in Boston, and to, Boston fans are so knowledgeable about the history, and it's almost like there's two kinds: one who want to tell you what they know about Smokey Joe Wood. Or other one want to know more about Smokey Joe Wood. I mean, he's really a, a well-known guy, and his story is, you know, famous for 1912. He came up when he was only 18 years old, and he won over 20 games and pitched a no-hitter when he was 21. And at 22, his record was 34 and five, and he won three games in the World Series, and he was a major figure. Um, also, the sportscasters uh, got into this because he was a very handsome guy. And he hung out with Tris Speaker. And they could tell a lot of stories. Some of them were even true. But they told a lot, of, a lot of stories about that they were cowboys from the Midwest, I mean from the West, and that they were sort of tough dudes and you don't cross them. And, and that they were, uh, you know, either some guys said they were hard drinking and other people said they were teetotalers. Um, so they made up these stories. And, and they did get associated in the press and on the team with the Protestant element. Uh, in a conflict between the Catholics and the Protestants. So Wood was a very visible, uh, attractive, uh, well-known guy in 1912. And he was the, the stud of the pitching staff. And he pitched the first game and the third game and won them both. Uh, and he had a death threat letters, maybe as many as six, 
uh, before he pitched in the polo grounds in 1912. One of one of these letters you have in the book, the right. actual letter, which is uh, it's just to read this is it can shake you ta- to the ground. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that I found interesting about it was not only that it was it sounded pretty serious, but it scared me. <laughs> and it didn't. Joe said he wasn't scared. He said politicians have to deal with this all the time, so uh, I shouldn't be afraid. The other thing I thought was interesting is that it had a kind of political edge to it, that he was making too much money, and uh, they were going to cut down these guys who were, you know, into the big money. You know, the big money of $5,000 <laughs> is all that he was making at the time. So, yeah, I think he was a, a major guy, and that, that tradition continues to live. I mean, one of the things that I talk about in the book is, I mean, Joe was a great guy and probably isn't, was one of the first inductees into the Red Sox Hall of Fame. And certainly could be considered a legitimate um, contender for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, but the real question is, is, how come a guy who's only won 117 games, and as, a, and as a position player, he did hit in the 290s, but only hit over 300 once, although that was 366. Why does his name live on so much? There was certain magic about Smokey Joe Wood that continues today. He's in Field of Dreams. Um, he's in a, a relatively obscure movie called Long Gone. Uh, there's just something interesting and magical about him, probably beginning with his youth, with his being hurt, with his being extremely good-looking, um, and then his whole story of pitching for three years with a torn rotator cuff, uh, coming back as an outfielder. As I always tell people, I run the Cardinals fans. We're talking about Cardinals fans, you know. You know, I know Rick Ankeel, and he was no Smokey Joe Wood. Because <laughs> uh, Wood was really quite good as an outfielder. He did platoon. People don't know there was platooning back then. So he didn't get to play quite as much. But when he played, he was really, really a good outfielder. And hit, you know, he had a lifetime batting average of higher than Harry Hooper's, including when he pitched. And then when he pitched two years, he hit in the 100s. And he still had a lifetime batting average of three points higher than Harry Hooper. So he was a good hitter as well as a good pitcher. And it's, it, it's a cliche, but it's really true that after Babe Ruth, um, Joe Wood was an, you know, the next best player in the history of Major League Baseball to be a pitcher and then an outfielder. There's just no question about that. Well, let's go. Let's take it back to part sure. of this youth, this good-looking guy, this tough guy, as you say, uh, impersonated a, a female. <laughs> so may, let's tell yeah, us about that, that. that. You know, that's one of the stories that's told. You know, if you say, oh, you did work on some you say, oh, wasn't he the guy who played as the bloomer girl? And, you know, he, he also said that uh, one or two other famous players did, but they would never admit it. Um, but, yeah, he admitted it. He did. Uh, the, sto- the story was a simple one. He was playing in a small city uh, called Nest City, and they would have these kinds of, of touring events. The, the um, House of David would do this. Some of the Indian players would do this. And they had women's teams, and this one was out of Kansas City. And they played in that city against Joe Wood's team, and Joe Wood's team won easily. And uh, the guy said, would you like to play for us? And I thought Joe, Joe was a very candid guy in his, in, his, um, in his letters, but even more so in his interviews. And he just said, you know, my, my father had lost a lot of money, and he needed some money, and they were going to pay us 25 bucks. Besides, my father was into sort of the absurdity of it all. And so his father supported him, and his father had to sign for him. So he went and played the last three weeks in Kansas, uh, impersonating a girl uh, on a team called the Bloomer Girls. They were called the National Bloomer Girls, but they were really only out of Kansas City. They really weren't national. And he played for three weeks. And, um, you know, that was his first professional playing. Um, So technically, he couldn't play in college if he had gone to college because he had played professionally as a woman. He then moved up very quickly, so that within a year and a half, while he was playing in Kansas City for the Blues and got called up at the end of the season by the Red Sox as an 18-year-old. And you have one of the ads from the uh, Blue Girls, which I love. Come and see the girls play ball. Game called to 3 o'clock sharp. Yeah. No no messing around with this. (laughs) Uh, It's a Midwesterners for you. (laughs) Everything orderly. Uh, And... We're jumping around a bit sure. in, in in chronological uh, order, so to speak. But you mentioned his dad. Yeah. 
if you would speak a little bit about his father because it, it was fasc- it's really fascinating yeah absolutely I mean I, in the book I had to make sure that his father's story didn't over you know overshadow his in, in some areas his father was an, a very smart guy that really only went in his family to get college educated and he became a lawyer and uh, he moved the family to Nest City made a lot of money in land speculation lost a lot of money um, then took the family to Colorado and twice in his early years he went panning for gold he went to the Yukon and then he went to the Southwest and I think that was an important thing in Joe's formative years to have his father sort of abandon the family the second time when it was in Colorado Joe was older and more sensitive and the family was actually quite poor and he had to go out and you know pick up bottles pick up aluminum do these kinds of things to, to help the family get along but he had sort of a, a surrogate family in the baseball team because he was very talented. And he was playing on basically a men's team when he was 15 years old. And I think this really helped him get through. He loved his father, but his father was an eccentric and somewhat self-indulgent person who was quite willing to leave the, the family to go in the pursuit of gold. He also was a very gifted lawyer, um, but then he sort of gave up. When they moved back to Pennsylvania, he sort of gave up lawyering and became sort of a chicken farmer. In a, in a sort of a small time inventor, and um, and uh, the family took a lot of Joe's money and, and put it to work, and you know he really helped out his family because they didn't, even though his father was very talented, uh, he didn't really pra- practice law once he went back to yeah. Pennsylvania in 1910, is when that was. Yeah. So now, so when Joe is 18, he he makes the Red Sox. When he's 22, he has arguably the most dominating season yeah. in baseball history uh, for a pitcher. So just talk a little bit, if you would, about how how does he get to the Red Sox at the age of 18? How did they find him, and how did he get there? Yeah, well, they, they sort of scouted him. They sort of knew that he was around. There was actually a backstory about that, that the, that the Washington team, sometimes called the Senators and sometimes called the Nationals, um, that they really wanted Joe Wood and that they thought that they ought to have the rights to the guy that that, that was playing with Joe Wood. And so there was some controversy, particularly between Washington and the Red Sox. Uh, and the Red Sox went after him. The, the other interesting thing about that was they sort of watched him all that year. And he didn't really even have a winning season, but he struck out a lot of guys. And, and he was really an overpowering pitcher when he was on. Um, and so the Red Sox, you know, wanted to sign him. The, the backstory that was really interesting is that Joe Wood wanted more than the minimum and his father, who was a you know, somewhat pro-union, pro-worker uh, lawyer, uh, said, uh, you're good. You need more than the minimum. And Joe went home and wouldn't sign with the Red Sox until they gave him more money than the minimum. And they did. But what was really interesting, and those of you who know baseball history know this, that the Boston Globe essentially owned the Red Sox. And so then the story started to be floated in the Boston Globe that he was out for money and that he was a whiner and that went all the way through his early years in fact the, one of the first reviews of his first pitching which he, he pitched pretty well for a couple of innings and then got beat up and the comment was this kid thinks he wants a lot more money he's going to have to pitch a lot better than this so money was brought in from the very first review of that and he had a reputation for being sort of a guy who was who was out to make a buck my point of view, and I think the point of most of us now, is he was just standing up for himself, and he had a lawyer father who was pretty smart about this. And uh, when he thought he wanted more, he went for it. When he got hurt and thought he didn't deserve it, then he backed off. Um, but he was willing to stand up for himself and stand up to the Boston Red Sox and the Boston Globe and get a little um, bad publicity here and there. And then he, uh, I don't want to gloss over, we may get to it in the questions about his actual career with the Red Sox. Sure as this dominating pitcher, gets hurt. Then when he sits out a season, he sits out and then comes back as an outfielder. Yeah. But what's really, why did he really sit out that season? Was it strictly due to the injury or were there other reasons? Yeah, let me add a little bit to that. Between 1912 and 1915, it's it's clear now, and I was so lucky in a lot of ways. I got to speak to the man who, um, who took care of Joe Wood in his last year of his life. He's still the head of gerontology at Yale. And this is what the conversation was like. So you're a Red Sox fan. Yeah, I'm a great Red Sox fan. So you took care of Joe Wood. Yeah, I did. So uh, I don't want to 
ask anything about medical ethics here, but um, what was it? He said, it was a torn rotator cuff. So he got hurt twice with a thumb injury in 1913, but when he came back, he, he got a shoulder, he got a torn rotator cuff. And what's amazing about Joe Wood is he pitched in 1914 and in 1915 with a torn rotator cuff. And in 1915, he led the American League in winning percentage, 15-5, and five, and in earned run average, 1.49, pitching with a torn rotator cuff. But and he said that he only could pitch about every three weeks because for the first two weeks after he pitched, he couldn't raise his right arm above his waist. And he would have to put all his change in the other pocket because he couldn't get his hand up that high. Um, and what happened is that some things, there was some confluence of a number of things. Don't, don't forget, um, you know, also the Federal League got started. So Joe Wood was hurt in 1915. The Federal League was coming on, uh, had come on, and there's a question of what was going to happen. So it's really a combination of things. One is, because the Federal League was folding, they wanted Joe Wood to take a cut from $7,500 a year back to $5,000. We are back in the money. <coughs> money counted then, too. Joe didn't want to take that cut, but he also knew he was hurt. And he thought if he took the year off, um, maybe he could rehabilitate. And he, um, he'd even seen uh, Bonesetter Reese in the meantime, and that didn't take. So he went to an illegal chiropractor here in New York, and um, who told him, Gee, I don't know exactly what it is, so I want you to go out every day and throw until you can't stand the pain anymore, <laughs> and then I'll see if I can figure out what it is. Yes. And of course, this wasn't a smart thing. <laughs> I'm not an MD, but I think, <laughs> I think you can see this wasn't a smart thing. So he was out in 1916. Technically, he was still on the team. In 1915, when they won the World Series, um, Wood was on the team, he was pitching, but his arm hurt so bad he was in the bullpen. In 1916, yeah, and well, one of the things that's interesting if you're a Red Sox fan is, um, you know, in the bullpen they had Babe Ruth, who didn't pitch, only went to one at bat, and Joe Wood and Carl Mays, you know, would be in the Hall of Fame, except that he killed Ray Chapman, which is part of the Joe Wood story. Um, that was Those were guys in the bullpen who didn't pitch. <laughs> they had a really good team in 1915. 1916, technically Joe Wood was still on the team because he was still under contract to the Red Sox. And as you know, I mean, this was before there was any kind of freedom. So Joe Wood technically was, you know, still could only play for the Red Sox. But he didn't report, and he was off the team in 1916. Um, in 1917, then, uh, Tris Speaker helped him come to the Indians, and he tried to be a pitcher early in the year. And it, it didn't work out real well. And uh, that was sort of a lost year. In 1918, he came back and he said, you know, you don't have to pay me if I can't do it, but I'm going to try again. And he came back and they switched him to the outfield. That was, you know, the end of World War One. So there was really, um, there was really a weakness. There were a lot of players who weren't very good and would play as outfielder. And, uh, you know, he was one of the RBI leaders in the American League that year. He was really an effective, effective outfielder in 1918. Then when they got a guy named Elmer Smith, he platooned, but he also played some second base. He played first base. He was a really naturally talented athlete um, in these years. The, the great story that Bob Wood used to love to tell about his father was, um, uh, you know, there were um, two really talented players uh, in in the beginning of the year, and I'm, and I'm blocking on... Uh, uh, the, run, the runner, football player. Somebody help me. Jim Thorpe. Jim Thorpe. Yeah. Says there are two, two of the most talented players uh, to play baseball in the first twenty years are Jim Thorpe and Joe Wood. And Jim Thorpe couldn't hit a curveball. <laughs> uh, Wood did play against Jim Thorpe, but then he came back as an outfielder, played for the for the Indians, and in nineteen twenty won the World Series again, um, playing part time in the outfield, and played two more years. Uh, and one of the more interesting things is that at 31 years old in, in, in 1921, Wood hit 366, higher than Tris Speaker. Uh, but he was a platoon player, so he wasn't eligible to be counted in the top hitters. And it's last year when, when Smith left, 
uh, Wood again was a very, very effective player. There was some evidence that he was striking out a lot more, but he was really a good player, and then he retired at, at 32 years old. There was no Hall of Fame. Uh, mostly he said he... This a, to me, is an interesting thing. The family liked to believe this, and I think it's true, that Wood said he was worried he had four children by then. And he said when he came off of road trips, the children didn't know who he was. And that upset him. And he said, I was a big family man. So, I, you know, what he did is he interviewed with Yale for the baseball position, and he said, if you'll give me the same amount of money that I'm getting in the major leagues, then I'll go to Yale. And they matched it. So money was a factor. Security was a factor. But it's also true, and he, I think he said this to Lawrence Ritter. He's a very driven person on the inside. And he had proved it to himself that he could come back. And once he proved it to himself, he frankly didn't care that much about what other people thought. And so he was willing to give up baseball, which he really loved, um, because he had proved to himself that he could make it as a position player. Uh, and he was a quite good position player. And if you could just speak uh, whatever you'd like to talk about during his uh, Yale it was about 20 years that he coached yeah. the team, right? Yeah, he was there, yeah, about 20 years. He had a real successful career. Uh, the first year, he was sort of the freshman coach and the pitching coach. Uh, and then he took over the second year and was the very successful, you know, won a lot of titles for them, I think was liked pretty well. Um, the, the sad part was that when World War II started in 1942, then Wood was let go. Uh, there was a statement in the paper that he didn't get any pension. He did only get a couple of year pension. He actually did get a little bit of a pension. But um, he was released, and he was pretty bitter about that. He was pretty bitter that Yale let him, let him go like that. And I think this is what the frame for the book, the beginning and the end, and it was like a no-brainer how I would do this book. Uh, about six months before he died, Joe was given the honorary doctorate to Yale by Bart Giamatti, who was then the president of Yale, was an English teacher president of Yale before he became the commissioner of baseball. And um, part of the reason I think that Yale wanted to give Joe that honorary doctorate because they knew that he had this bitterness over being released in 1942 and Yale wanted to make its peace with Smokey Joe Wood. In fact, Bart Giamatti's family and Wood were almost neighbors in a little area called Westville. And this was a personal thing. Bart Giamatti's father was a rabid Red Sox fan and one of his favorite players was Smokey Joe Wood. In fact, it, that reputation of Joe Wood was so powerful in the mind of Bart Giamatti that, that he, Bart himself said this, and the Leo Cooney, the uh, gerontologist, told me the same thing, that, that Giamatti was intimidated by Wood in his presence, even when he was a man with Alzheimer's disease sitting in a wheelchair, because, partly because he was a mythical figure to Bart's father who had passed that down to Bart. So that becomes the frame for the story. Uh, it, it was a no-brainer where to do this. And you have these two great figures of Boston Red Sox history and even baseball history, if you know baseball history, and Bart Giamatti, who was a, you know, a wonderful person and a tragic figure, and their lives crossing on that one day. So that's where the book starts. You have a beautiful photo, too, of that uh, in here, of yeah. the two of them. Yeah, and Bart's yeah. Sort of <laughs> just sort of standing there. You know, that's yeah. the thing, because Bart was such a theatrical person, and, and Leo Cooney said it was so visible that, that Bart didn't know what to do, how to act, uh, because this was Smokey Joe Wood. And, of course, he had, you can imagine he had very mixed feelings that Joe was now in this broken condition, but also that he was still the kid who was intimidated by this man. <laughs> that, that myth was still there. And the Wood family said that, that he was sort of a man's man, that he never talked but he had this charisma presence uh, when he was there. He just, when he, he wouldn't speak much, but when he did, everybody would be sort of forced to listen. You know, and he did things, he was an old man, you know, when he wanted to take a, when he wanted to take a, a, a bath, he would just go down to the creek, <laughs> freezing water, this is in <laughs> Pennsylvania, and just go down there, and, it is, and his, his grandson even told me, he knew exactly where the rock was, where he would always put his soap, and he'd get in there and w just wash himself. And, you know, he's probably 75 years old when he was doing this. So there was that, that real presence that Joe would have, a quiet presence, but a very strong presence. Uh, there are two... Uh, I'd just like you to speak a little bit about two baseball relationships. Sure. Uh, 
what the relationship was like between Smokey Joe Wood and Babe Ruth, his teammate, and Smokey Joe Wood and Christy Matheson. Yeah. Um, well, his relationship with Babe Ruth was strained when they played. You also need to understand that people talk about why Babe Ruth was brought up in the first year that he was brought up. And Joe Wood was one of the major reasons. Joe Wood had just gone to Bonesetter Reese, and it was clear that he wouldn't be able to pitch. And they brought up Ruth, and they also brought up a guy named Ernie Shore, who was actually more interesting to them than Ruth, who's sort of a throw-in. Um, and so Wood was anxious about what Ruth was going to be like. And Ruth, you know, was a fun-loving guy, but he didn't know anything about boundaries or rules. And you need to know Joe Wood's personality. Joe Wood was not only a handsome guy, but he was fastidious. He always dressed nice. Even toward the end of his life, he had this distinctive red bow tie that he would always wear. Always be clean cut and and fastidious about how he would do his food. He would do it the night before. Everything had to be neat. The grandchildren had to stay away from his Chrysler. Don't touch his Chrysler. <laughs> he, he was very he was very um, fastidious about his life in general. And what really bothered him about Babe Ruth is that sometimes when Babe Ruth would get excited about food, when he wasn't excited about women, he was excited about food, and he would eat with his fingers. And Joe found that disgusting. <laughs> and so he and Ruth didn't get along, and there was a famous story, which is probably true, you know, where Ruth wanted to pick up a ball and he wouldn't do it, and they sort of had words and almost got into it. Joe, in his later life toward Babe Ruth, came to understand how good a player Ruth was. And he said, Ruth, not only he was a, a pretty good pitcher, although he couldn't go late into the innings, and he said he had a wonderful arm and was really a quite good outfield. And then in, in the book, you, you know, you can read this. Uh, he did a wonderful sort of psychoanalysis of Babe Ruth in his late life. He basically said, well, it was all because he was an orphan kid and went in this reform school, and he didn't know how to behave. So late in his life, um, Joe Wood came to understand Babe Ruth but they never became friends. Although one of the things that was fascinating to me is to go back to Shahola, Pennsylvania. When Ruth, Ruth came to Shahola a lot, and as Joe said, Joe said somewhat comically, he came down there to shoot birds, but well, he never came alone. Uh, <laughs> Ruth had a lot of his liaisons in, in Milford in the surrounding area. And he would get off the train in Shahola where Joe also got off the train. So all the stories were that Joe Wood and Babe Ruth used to hang out and drink at Roman's Bar. They both did drink there, but never together because they weren't, they weren't friends. Um, actually, uh, I had a book signing in Roman's Bar uh, just a couple of weeks ago. That was a real hoot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a re- wonderful dump. If you ever get a chance, go to Roman's. You know, the people still go there to see the old days. Andretti Brothers are supposed to go there. Robert De Niro shows up. And this is right along the road. But it's really true that both... Ian Wood with her. Christy Matthewson, um, there's a story in that. You know, people need to get into that more. Because uh, Christy Matthewson was known, you know, as the Christian gentleman, and that he was this upright guy. And um, as I say, before the 1912 World Series, Joe Wood didn't like Christy Matthewson, and by the end, he had a lot more reason not to like him. Uh, they didn't get along at all. Um, would accuse, and people should study this because it's, it's, I think it's really, I think Wood may be onto something. He said Matthewson is what they call a knocker. And in his articles, maybe they're ghost written or not, but Matthewson would write these articles saying, well, the reason we didn't win in 1912 is I was playing with the guys who didn't know how to win. You know, these guys didn't know how to win. They didn't have the guts to win. So he would talk about his own teammates as if they just didn't have the innards to play. And Joe thought that was awful. The bigger issue was that there were stories during the 1912 World Series that two stories. Uh, one that would, the big one was that Wood had had a fight, or his brother had had a fight with a guy named O'Brien, who was one of the pitchers, who was a Catholic. And Wood was just, and so of course the Boston papers got a hold of this, and it was a big deal. This is the Catholics against the Protestants. Oh, yeah, before I go any further, Joe Wood's father was an atheist. Joe Wood was married in the Methodist church only because his mother was a Methodist. He never went to church. He had no affiliation. He had no opinions about religion. And when people would ask him, he said, that's for somebody else to decide. He never talked about that. So it was a creation, uh, largely a creation, although certainly I think it was more like the insiders and the outsiders. 
the insiders from Boston who tended to be Catholic, and people like Speaker and Wood who tended not to be Catholics and not to be from someplace else were sort of lumped into this, this other group. Well, the point was, Matthewson in his, in his articles, after that was over, after the World Series was over, kept bringing that back up again. And Wood and O'Brien both repeatedly went out in like their vaudeville act and stuff and said, they came up as friends and sung together to prove that they didn't fight and they said they never did this. And Wood said, and, and O'Brien said, that if that in the articles Matthewson said, it's reported that, and if he wouldn't have used those words, they would have sued him for defamation of character. So Joe Wood did not like Christy Matheson as a person he thought he was, he played the pious role, but that he actually um, reported things that he should have kept his mouth, and they especially were upset because they had, they had sort of a, a, a player's organization, and Matheson was representing the players, and he thought this was a pretty awful thing for him to, to badmouth his own players. I think there's an interesting story in that. Uh, on the other hand, like with Ruth, he said, you know, Matthewson was a great pitcher. He had a lot of heart, and he said, the key, he said, no, everybody talks about it as what we now call a screwball. But he said, Matthewson was the only pitcher who could throw a high curve and get people out with it. So he said that. Just to throw one other one in, um, the other thing that I, that I have come to believe in writing the book is the relationship between Joe Wood and Tris Speaker is extremely informative about a lot of things in baseball history. Um, Speaker and Wood basically came up the same. Speaker came up a little bit before Wood and was sent back down again. Then Wood came up and then Speaker followed him really soon. They became roommates. They were good friends. And Speaker and Wood hung out together. They did a little fishing together. Um, you know, they caroused a little bit. They both liked fast cars. Um, and Wood became the sort of worship speaker. And Speaker's the one who got him to Cleveland. And then Speaker became the manager as well as his, his teammate. Wood basically felt that the Speaker could do no wrong. And as one of the commentators at the time, I think maybe it was Hugh Fullerton, I'm not, I can't remember offhand who it was, one of the guys at the time said brilliantly, uh, Speaker was more like a father to Wood than anything else. Joe Wood had, I don't know you call it a father issue, but I mean he tended to find father figures been abandoned by his father twice and he tended to do what they said and I think that this explains a lot what went on in the 1926 scandal because it's fairly clear if you look at the tapes and if you believe them a lot of people just don't want to believe the tapes Joe Wood thought those tapes weren't going to be read by anybody he repeatedly said are you going to erase this right Larry this isn't going to be done right Larry and it seems if you look at the material it's fairly clear that Cobb and Speaker did bet on that, that Wood knew they did. And get this part. If that's true, this is what nobody seems to talk about. If that's true, which is what Wood said, then Joe Wood took the fall for Speaker and Cobb. He said that he bet on that game and he didn't do it. And he said that there was somebody from Cleveland who bet and it wasn't Speaker and he wouldn't name him. And then he said, Tris Speaker and I never talked about this. Are you kidding me? <laughs> they were best of friends. They were roommates for years, and they hung out together. One of the last trips that Speaker made was to the Wood Farm. Um, it, it, it seems to me that the relationship between Tris Speaker and Joe Wood was a great friendship, uh, and, and it should be seen as basically positive. But also, Wood had, was a little bit worshipful about Speaker. And Wood had, to it in Wood's word, Tris Speaker and I really cared for each other. Uh, he'd have gone to hell for me and I'd have gone to hell for him. I don't know there's any evidence that Tris Speaker ever would have gone to hell for Joe Wood, but Joe Wood went to hell for Tris Speaker. And for that, the scandal that you just spoke about, most baseball fans know about the, uh, even non-baseball fans, many know about the 1919 Black Sox. Why is the, why do you think this scandal is so uh, very few people know about this other than real baseball uh, historians and fanatics know about this but other than that very few people know this story well partly because of course the you know there's a blown World Series and what happened in the 1919 World Series I mean that's the obvious thing 
what, what I would say, and for baseball historians, to, to go back and, and look more carefully at this scandal. Because the scandal that Wooden Speaker, and basically what it was is the Dutch Leonard said that they conspired to throw a game two weeks before the 1919 World Series. So this was right at that same time, and there's a lot going on. And there was a letter from Wood about the betting to Leonard, which clearly implicated him. He said how much money it was, what, what they were doing. They tried to get Cobb involved, but they couldn't get him involved in time. And Wood and Cobb sort of said, well, it wasn't really true, and the speaker didn't know anything about it. What's important about that, I think, in the history of baseball, is you, you understand that the fact is between 1919 and 1926, guys were slowly getting weaned off of betting on baseball. A lot of betting in the late teens, and it was they were starting to get weaned off of doing that. But it was not illegal by baseball standards to bet on baseball between 19 and 19 and 1926. And this scandal that Wooden Speaker were involved with Leonard was extremely important in the history of this because this is where Landis sort of changed his attitude. He was sort of, if you don't mind me saying it, sort of a kick-ass guy between 1919 and 1926. In 1926, he let Cobb and Speaker off the hook. And the reason was because there had been all these scandals going on and on. Two things happened. One is, I think Joe Wood was involved in this, Landis finally figured out that baseball was bleeding and they better let some guys off the hook to stop all this <coughs> gossip that had been going on for seven years and God only knows how long it was going to go on. And Joe Wood was a part of that. He implicitly conspired with Landis to make sure that baseball would be whitewashed at this point. The other thing was that by the end of that year, by 1927, they established the rules that baseball exactly, almost exactly like what it is today. You know, these are the banishments that you're going to have if you bet, and if you bet on your own team, these things are going to happen. And it was the result of this one that sort of set up those those realities that we live with. And of course, that's legal. I'm no lawyer, but that's legally the significant difference between, say, for example, Shoeless Joe Jackson's implication and that of Pete Rose. Because Shoeless Joe Jackson took money, but there weren't any baseball didn't have any rules. You know, and and Pete Rose knew the rules. After 1927, they were everywhere. And this this was the, there was another scandal going on at the same time. But this was the one that really had an awful lot to do with changing the history of baseball. Well, let's go from the scandal to uh, any questions from the clubhouse crowd. Anyone want to read off? The name Smokey Joe was it because yeah. he threw fast? Or that, and did he throw yeah. a spinner? I'm just confused. Interesting question. Uh, the second answer is no, but it's got a better story than that. Uh, the, the, Joe Wood uh, threw real fast, and this is—I spent a lot of time with this because we all know that a guy named Paul Shannon, who wrote for the Boston Post, was the one who watched him pitch, and I think most people say was catching him warming up for a game, and said, "Boy, that guy sure does throw smoke." And then the question was, when did this happen? And a lot of people thought this happened when he was a rookie. A lot of people thought this was in spring training. They had all these answers. And so I spent an awful lot of time going through the newspapers, especially the Post, trying to figure out when this happened. And there was a, there was a game in Boston right at the end of August in, in, in um, 1912. And this seemed to be when it happened, that, that <coughs> Shannon was there. He says, this guy really throws smoke. And you can see what happened. The Post was the first one to have used that name and then there was the famous game with Walter Johnson, where Wood pitched against Johnson. And after that, um, and certainly by the World Series, the, all, everybody slowly, you know, globes are okay, I guess we've got to call him Smokey Joe. <laughs> and so the other papers picked it up later, but it was a guy named Paul Shannon who did this, and it was the end of August. A famous game, if you don't know, like, it came with Walter Johnson. That was a really interesting game because Walter Johnson had 16 consecutive wins in the 1912 season. Actually, Ruben Marquardt had 19 in, in the National League in the same year. But he had 16, and he had not gotten the 17th. And Wood had, I think, 13. And so they pitched him against each other to see if Ms. Johnson could keep Wood from tying the record. Wood won the game one to nothing on back-to-back doubles. <laughs> and uh, that got 16, and he didn't get the 17th either. So it's still a record, though the most consecutive wins in the American League during in one season 
it's still 16 and I think it's held by six players Bill Walter Johnson and Smokey Joe Wood or two of them so we've got a lot of great authors talking about pitchers from you know different eras and the common theme has always been that pitchers back in the day weren't so much concerned with pitch counts or how many days rests you had it was you know some of these guys would pitch double headers some of these guys would pitch you know start one day and come in late the next day this is the first pitcher that I've heard though that legitimately had an injury at a certain point is there anything that you know about that maybe he Right. Well, was there some way in his mechanics or was something or was it just a freak accident? Well, he hurt his, his, hurt his thumb. Most people talk about that he hurt it, and he said this. He, he hurt his thumb in Detroit uh, feeling a bunt and trying to throw the third, and he slipped and fell just as he was trying to get the ball, sure. and he broke his thumb. Actually, he had hurt his thumb earlier in the year, and so this was the second injury, and he actually he actually broke that. And when he came, well... <laughs> You know, he said he came back too early, but he actually he only pitched once more that year, and he didn't come back very quickly. But it's clear that in doing that, uh, now we know that, it changed his arm angle, and that's when the shoulder problem started, and that's when he really had it. Back to the question about, before I forget about the spit. Uh, there's an interesting <laughs> story in 1914, and this is uh, the story is actually told by, I think, a very reputable uh, recorder of baseball history, Billy Evans, the umpire. Billy Evans tells the story of in 1914 uh, a pitcher and this is actually true what happened Evans wasn't there but he had another umpire report this to him that Wood was pitching in a game and they took him out because he was hurt and they brought in the next pitcher and the next pitcher threw three consecutive wild pitches and Evans said that Wood had learned how to talk to the ball that he was, that he had some sandpaper, and he was messing with the ball, and the ball was damaged. And so when the next pitcher came in, <laughs> he didn't know how to handle the ball. Nineteen fourteen, and they all there's a guy named Russ Ford that apparently was the guy who was really good at doing this, and they all sort of learned that. So Wood did doctor the ball a little bit when he got hurt, but he still says he didn't throw many curveballs, that he still only threw fastballs. So he probably did some what we would now call cutting of his fastball. But the real issue with him was when he hurt his thumb, he, he threw his curveball by putting a lot of pressure with the index finger and the thumb. And he couldn't throw the curveball. The curveball was what it affected. Obviously, when he hurt his shoulder, the speed was a problem, too. But it mostly affected his curveball, so he couldn't throw many curves after that. And there is some evidence that he doctored the ball a little bit, especially in 1914. Jerry, I have to apologize if I confused you coming in because no. I assumed you were Bob's son. Yeah. <laughs> and it was Bob's son who called me. It was Rob. I mean, yeah, to say that no problem. his dad was... No problem. But let, yeah. me, let me say this because this is, this is a fascinating story. You know, I mean, you want to know that you're related to Smokey Joe Wood. You know, especially when, you know, I had to be a second baseman because I couldn't throw the ball from short. So, you know, this guy could throw the ball. In fact, Bob Wood said at one point that Joe thought he probably threw the ball 100 miles an hour, even well back then, and he was really pretty fast. So I wanted to know this. And, and one of his grandsons is a guy named Richard who lives in Alaska. And Richard's really a, sort of like the Joe's father. He's a real interesting guy who has a lot of interest. And um, <laughs> what else are you going to do in Alaska? <laughs> and one of the things that he's interested in is science and in, in genetics. And he said, we need to have DNA testing. So we, I did that. I had DNA testing. And my son is also a geneticist. And my son read all the way. And, and my son said, I'm sorry, but you're not very related. <laughs> you know, it's probably back in England we are, but there's no evidence. Well, the weirdest thing happened. In the process of doing this, I got into genetic research on myself. I couldn't get Joe Wood back any farther than 1750, but I got myself back to 1550 in England. <laughs> and along the way, I found out, you know, that I'm directly related to one of the most horrible presidents in the history of American history, Miller Fillmore. My relative, direct relative, was his grandmother of Miller Fillmore. <laughs> and I admit it. <laughs> just like Joe Wood playing for the Bloomer Girls. Okay, let's get it out but the thing that was really interesting is the person who did this research is absolutely brilliant about this, a woman named Linda Cass. And I had been talking about it, Joe Wood's grandmother is named Middaw. Well, I knew that I was related to a person named Meadow. 
Well, they just sometimes got the E and they sometimes got the I. Technically, technically, I am the fifth cousin of Smokey Joe Wood, twice removed <laughs> through the Medaw family. No blood, no blood, but we married into the same family. And uh, you know, and, and I also want to believe I put this in the book because it's just sort of silly and romantic, but also wonderful. Um, my family was involved. A guy named Elijah Wood, who was my grandfather, and then his father and the father before him were all named Elijah Wood. And they they only lived about fifty miles from where Joe Wood, and and he was what's called a steersman in the lumber industry. Well, Joe Wood's family cleared out all their wood and floated it down the same river. So I like to believe that his family and my family, you know, somehow met in bringing wood down the Lackawaxen River. Maybe they had a beer together. I hope so. I do have a question though uh, regarding uh, Roger Ainge's wonderful essay. Yeah. Absolutely. Watching the uh, Frank Viola and uh, Ron Darling right. square off up at Yale with Smokey Joe Wood sitting there. And Wood, I think, was about 90 or somewhere. Yeah. 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 Anything more you can share about that story or did it come up in your book? Yeah, I talk about that. I mean, that, the, the last chapter is about basically he was a great player, but why has his legacy lived so long? And that's one of the things that I dealt with. I mean, when, that's one of the great. Joe Wood is in. He's in You Know Me Al. He's in The Celebrant. He's in all of these really important documents. Um, and he's in that Radnor Angel story, which has got to be at the top of the anecdotes. And the story is that that he went to see this very famous game where Darling actually pitched a no-hitter and lost in the 10th. St. John's was playing against Yale. And Larry Ritter, I mean, Angel Roger Angel, went to the game with Smokey Joe Wood. And then Smokey Joe Wood had this this little pocket watch. And the pocket watch was the one that he received from a businessman in Boston for winning the 1912 World Series. And Angel kept thinking, what are the similarities? And this is where, you know, the, the whole idea of the essay was that baseball links us through time. And he's sitting here with the guy playing with this thing from the 1912 World Series. And this is 1980, I think, or 81. And he, and very poetically at the end, he said, I hope someday Ron Darling will figure out the parallel and see that he, like Walter Johnson, lost one to nothing in a really important game. And that he would see that Joe Wood was there, and Joe Wood was the guy who beat Walter Johnson by the same score. And that would be baseball through time. My own story about that is that um, I, got, I got interested in... Uh, before my, before my son-in-law became an anesthesiologist and made a lot of money, um, I was really interested in if I could possibly buy that. It can't, Bob would put that up for auction. In the year that the All-Star Game was played in San Francisco, 2006, maybe 2007, and the Hunt Auction put that up, and that was sold. I think it was sold for $5,400. I would love have that one. And I, and, I don't, and I don't know who has it, but I got a picture of it in the book. That was another interesting story, how you get lucky. You know, I wrote to Hunt and I said, I know you can't tell who bought it, but I just want a picture. And so that, you know, and one way it was a good thing, they, they sent me a picture. And they, so I got this wonderful picture. The sad part was they wouldn't tell me who it was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, you know, but I still drop hints everywhere. You know what I'd really like for Christmas <laughs> would be get that watch. Uh, but, you know, it's one of the great um, <clears throat> material possessions of baseball history. And another thing that Joe Wood was there for. Uh, so if you haven't ever read that, you really should, should read it. It's just a, a wonderful, wonderful essay. Jerry, what a, probably the most famous quote about smoke, uh, Joe Wood is the one, Walter Johnson, yeah. uh, this, are you faster than Joe Wood, and saying nobody's faster than yeah. Joe Wood. I was curious about what your thoughts about how fast these guys actually were compared to yeah. the pitchers today. Yeah, well, you know, like I, like I said, Joe Wood said that he probably threw the ball about 100 miles an hour or at least the last pitch in the 1912 World Series, you know, when he pitched to this guy named Doc Crandall. It was a 3-2 pitch. <laughs> and Wood, who was a really a no-nonsense, didn't, you know, his own judgment of his career was, well, I had two really good seasons, and the rest of the time I was hurt. You know, he didn't really ever blow his head. But he did say, um, I don't think Crandall ever saw it. <laughs> you know, the old story about Walter Johnson where it was getting dark, <laughs> the guy throws the ball. The guy says, "Strike!" And he says, 
That wasn't a strike. The Empire said Union C. He said, well, it sounded high. The thing about Joe, and this is again the thing about his interest in father figures, he just thought, unlike his feeling about Matthewson, that he was somewhat of a fraud, he really thought Walter Johnson was an amazing human being and a wonderful gentleman. He was a good daddy. And he said, you know, he just had nothing. And when people were telling that story about Johnson saying that, he said, well, Walter was just, he put it all on Johnson. He just says, Walter was that kind of a man. He would have said something nice like that. He would never say, hell yes, I was good as Walter Johnson. He just said, that's Walter for him. What a really nice guy. And he told an interesting story about, about Johnson, though. He said he and Johnson had a, they had an agreement between them that they could throw as hard as they wanted to when they batted against each other. Um, but nobody got to throw a curve. <laughs> <laughs> and he said they got into a game, and it was a tight game, and at the end, he said he curved me, man. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, after that, after that, Wood could throw a curve, too, if he oh, wanted yeah. to. <laughs> but for for literally years, they never uh, you know they never threw curveballs to each other. And the other thing that they shared, and this was extremely important to the 1912 World Series, actually. If you know, if you read any chapter in my book, and besides some of these other ones, I really think you should look at how I handled the 1912 World Series, because that's how it really was. And it's amazing to me that people didn't go back to the newspapers, because the newspapers told just like we do today that weather was an issue. The shadows were an issue. The fact that Chief Myers was a slow runner and he had a bad toe was an issue. That the key players got hurt and they were worried about it. And one of the big stories, well, the other big story was that Matthewson was supposed to start the first game. He didn't. And there were backstories that Matthewson was learning to throw a, uh, a knuckleball and that he was going to come in and throw a knuckleball. So there were all these interesting backstories that were going on about all that, about you know what was going to happen in the 1912 World Series. And one of the big things was, and they said this, they said, the real question is, will Joe Wood be able to throw inside? Because he's as terrified of hitting a batter as Walter Johnson is. And the two of them shared a terror of hurting somebody by throwing inside. Imagine how good Walter Johnson would have been if he'd ever thrown inside. He wouldn't throw inside, and all the batters knew he wasn't going to throw inside. And he was still that good. Um, you know, so, and in that World Series, would hit a guy, you know, and so there was some issue of whether that would really rattle him because the game actually against the White Sox, but, you know, against the White Sox, where would have hit a guy and it really upset him. And to the end of his life, he could remember the name of the two players, one who was in the major leagues, a guy named Byrne, who played for the Pirates primarily, and a guy in the minor leagues, I don't know if he ever got to the major leagues, Wood could name the guys that he hit. And that he thought he had hurt, I mean, he hit other guys, but that he thought he really hurt him. And he really thought he ended this guy Burns' career. And it haunted him to the last to the end of his life that he had shortened this guy's career. I, right in the footnote, there isn't any evidence that this really happened. He played for three more years. And the next year he had his highest batting average ever. <laughs> but that shows you how terrified Joe was that he was going to hurt somebody. And he and Johnson so had shared that anxiety. We're going to get to the next question, but we're going to, because of time constraints, we're going to have to say farewell to the podcast audience. So for those listening to the podcast, again, the name of this uh, fascinating book, you can tell from the discussion, which was fascinating, and the book even more so, uh, the name of the book, Smokey Joe Wood, The Biography of a Baseball Legend by Gerald C. Wood, published by the University of Nebraska Press. Jerry, thank you so much. Thanks, Jay. It's been wonderful. Thank you.